What is the future of liberalism? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Matt Bufton. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona. Our guest today is Matt Bufton. Matt co-founded the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2006 and has been serving as the executive director since 2010. When he's not showing off his knowledge of craft beer, he's arranging and overseeing ILS speaking events, academic seminars, and lectures. Matt, welcome to The Curious Task. It's a pleasure to be here. So Matt, in each episode, we start things off with a question and go wherever the discussion leads us. So let's kick it right off. What is the future of liberalism? I think that the future of liberalism is probably pretty good, uh, although uh, there are you know, may not be a smooth trajectory as some of us would like. Uh, I think that uh, for a long time, uh, a lot of us thought that the path of liberalism was straight upwards towards more freedom over time. And uh, there's been some events and developments around the world in the past four or five years that have made us realize that uh, that not every uh, you know development that's positive for freedom is permanent. Sometimes there might be some uh, some backsliding, uh, but overall, I certainly believe the trend is uh, is towards a more liberal future. And, uh, and of course, I mean that in, in the original and true sense of, uh, of liberal, so not towards, uh, towards a larger state with more, more government programs, but with a better society that is more free and allows individuals to pursue the things that give their life meaning. And, and you mentioned that it might not feel as if this is a steady trajectory. And I think to myself, every day I sort of feel like there are more and more... Um, there's there's more of a slide back on on liberal tendencies, especially when you think of uh, things like populism. It's on the rise around the world, especially uh, right wing forms of populism in many areas. So instead of talking about free trade and free speech and free association, all that great stuff you and I might agree on, instead uh, there's people talking about um, banning things like gay marriage. We got economic protectionism going on. Lots of things that aren't aren't just on the fringes anymore. These aren't just two people in a bar or some weird party that we can just call right-wing fringe. These are, these are gaining traction. These, these thoughts, I should say, and these tendencies are gaining traction with a lot of people. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's important to point out that populism is not purely a right-wing phenomenon, that we also see populism on the left. And mm-hmm. I think both, le- both left and right-wing populism uh, are counter to, to proper liberal uh, society in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but, uh, but I think it's important to keep things in perspective. I mean, you mentioned the fact that people are questioning, you know, should we have gay marriage? Should we, should we reverse that decision. Well, in the U.S., they've had gay marriage, you know, at the federal level, I think since 2014. I think the first states might have been in the early 2000s in Canada uh, since 2004. This is pretty recent uh, to a lot of our listeners. If you're, you know, a university student, then uh, then it may feel like these are battles that uh, that uh, have you know been won for your entire lifetime um, in terms of advocating for those those sorts of freedoms. But to uh, to our older listeners, who people are maybe in their fifties and sixties, um, then uh, then I think these things are probably still fresh in uh, in their memory. And so the fact that uh, yeah, there are people questioning decisions uh, like should we have gay marriage. Uh, that may may raise some concern, but also we can say, hey, just 20 years ago, you know, we didn't have any gay marriage. I don't believe in any developed country. We had some partnerships, but but gay marriage, I don't think, was legal anywhere. And in fact, I think I'm right in saying that in 1999 there was a motion that came forward in the House of Commons here in Canada 
uh, about uh, gay marriage and uh, the definition of marriage. And uh, it was in favor of a traditional definition of marriage. And the Liberal Party of Canada overwhelmingly voted in favor of that and against expanding the definition of marriage to include same-sex couples. And that's from a left-of-center progressive political party just in 1999. So, yes, there are some, some hiccups, but it's not like we've slid back to, uh, to where we were, say, before uh, we had gay, legal gay marriage, and certainly not as far back, uh, I think, as you don't have to go too far back from there. Uh, you go back into the 60s and 70s, um, you know, homosexuality activity is illegal in, uh, in a lot of places. And uh, there's some pretty serious you know, violent incidences. Uh, now, of course, those have not entirely gone away, and there's still some violence towards uh, you know, uh, homosexuals and sexual minorities and, and, uh, and groups like that. And we can say that, you know, any bit is too much, and that's I think, is correct. But it's also worth keeping in mind that as that goes down, that's a laudable thing, and that's something that I think we should you know, be cognizant of. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a social issue. So is it fair to sum up your point of view that in, of course, we're mostly speaking out like Western nations here, Western democracies. Is it fair to su- sum up your point of view as generally speaking, although the trajectory isn't completely linear, it's 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 upward? Yes, yes. It's going to be upwards. It has been upwards. I think it will continue to be upwards. But there may be some bumps along the road. Right. So that's social issues. Let's talk about economic issues now. Perhaps your answer is the exact same thing, but I still th- think it'd be interesting to drill down a bit deeper. Protectionism is a big thing right now. People in the United States, people in uh, Britain with the Brexit talk, uh, many other nations as well, even Canada to some degree. We can get into many examples if you'd like, but but ultimately there's a lot of nations who, if we go back to the 90s, which you already brought up, although there might have been some weird things on the social side going on there, in the 90s it, it seems for the most part that uh, free trade, uh, a positive stance on globalization when it came to trade between nations and things like that. This seemed to be the orthodox stance, not protectionism. And now we seem to be, in my opinion, going backwards on that. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe is this just a big bump? How do you see uh, the economic side of things when it comes to liberalism? Yeah, again, I think the the trend has been and will continue to be upwards, but again, with some of these hiccups. Uh, easy to see the, the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, the progression of, of trade and uh, and globalization, and uh, and that caused some some discontents. Uh, you know, people um, who were dislocated, uh, you know, put out of work, uh, industries that were reduced or in some cases almost completely uh, you know, disappeared due to the disruption of, uh, of trade agreements. And I think it's important to note that uh, that while trade agreements increase overwhelm- overall prospe- uh, prosperity, there's going to be some potential for disruption. Not everyone will uh, will be a winner. Uh, that's something that I think that perhaps those of us who are sort of uh, unqualified free traders have not done a good enough job of explaining and, and recognizing those sorts of concerns. And I think that's part of what we're, we're seeing now. Uh, you know, certainly in the 90s, uh, early 90s, NAFTA was signed and there was concern in the mid and late 90s about uh, car factories. I'm from Windsor, Ontario, big uh, big automotive the cap- automotive capital of Canada, and uh, and there was production that was shifting to Mexico, and that caused concerns. and uh, And so, in some cases, these are conversations and concerns that have been with us for a long time. And it does seem, to a degree, that the trade momentum that I think maybe we felt in the 80s and 90s has has sort of stalled out. There haven't been a lot of really big trade agreements signed, I don't think, uh, you know, in the past 10 years or so, not at the pace that they were being signed earlier. 
But it's worth, I think, noting that uh, that government policy is not the only way to consider this. So beyond just policy, we can look at the amount of trade that's actually taken place. And of course, the invention of the container ship uh, increased the potential, uh, a lot of communication, the fact that now someone in China can very easily, and for zero, zero money, as long as they have an internet connection, speak to someone in, uh, in Africa, in North America, in Europe. This connectivity has taken place, this globalization has taken place. So even on that front, although there are people expressing concern and reservations on the policy side, and we want to do what we can to address those in every way that we can, there's going to be, I think, increasing globalization just because of the way technology has changed. So it's fair to sum up your point of view in, in this case that economically speaking, once again, bumps on the road, but we're, we're in the most general sense still liberalizing economies mostly. This is still, we're still heading towards more globalization, a more interconnected world, uh, and, and more freedom in that sense. I, th- I think so, yeah. And of course, these are the sort of the, the twin pillars of the proper liberal tradition, right? You want mm-hmm. economic and social freedom for as many people in as large a degree as possible, as long as they're respecting the freedom and the, the rights of others. And uh, and it's easy, I think, to sort of throw up our hands and say, oh no, this, this populism is on the rise, mm-hmm. uh, all is lost, and, and we're going to such a, such a dark place. Um, and in some cases, you know, there are, there are places in the world, there are cases where the populist tendencies are sort of going in dark directions. Mm-hmm. But I think globally, the positive, uh, the direction of movement has continued to be positive in the right direction. So when we hear uh, things all over the news about something like immigration as another specific issue we could talk about, um, we hear that more and more there's a, there's a there's a growing number of people that seem to be against uh, immigration and, and not just Ill- illegal immigration. Uh, we're talking about just the very idea that newcomers uh, can come over to your country. That, that, that seems to be, according to what we hear, uh, scaring a lot of people these days. So once again bump on the road. How do you feel about that one? Same yeah. idea as the economics? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I mean, immigration is one that, again, there have always been people who have been concerned about immigration uh, and uh, and for a couple of reasons, right? Uh, one is the economic factor, people concerned about immigrants uh, taking jobs. Uh, then there's also the demand on, uh, on social safety nets, which of course has always been this inherent contradiction. These immigrants are coming here, they're stealing our jobs, and also they're mooching on our welfare. Uh, presumably, if they have the jobs, then they're not not mooching on the welfare. Um, but there's also also a cultural angle. And I, I think perhaps the cultural angle is the one that, has, uh, that is raising a concerns these days uh, in a way that perhaps it wasn't in the, uh, in the in the recent past. But again, we can we can look back and I think a, a lot of people who express concerns about immigration in the current context say, well, the types of people that want to come to Canada, want to come to the U.S. are different than past immigrants because past immigrants were from, from, were from different places. But if you look back, that sort of gets said with every new group, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to go back, uh, you know, into the distant, distant past, you can go back in the early days of Canada, and uh, and the idea of having the Irish here was uh, was controversial. You know, these Irish are not like us; they're they're Catholics, and that is a very different thing. And now now we laugh at that, and we say, well, you know, the the Irish were okay because they had the same religion and they were the same ethnicity and the same race. But you look at the people who opposed Irish immigration at the time; they didn't think that uh, they had the same religion because they thought the Protestants and Catholics were very very different things, and they didn't even think of ethnicity was really shared because I, the Irish were not considered to be white in a, in a lot of cases. So. So 
I, I think that uh, the resistance and some of the rhetoric we're seeing about immigration, uh, it can be troubling, it can be concerning, but I'm not sure that it's that different from some of the adjustments uh, and some of the, the tensions that existed in previous eras. So if in the macro, let's say, uh, things aren't as concerning as they might be made out to be in, in the media or wherever, have you, um, do you think in the micro people like us, for instance, that are could, would consider themselves liberals in, in many ways, including the classical sense, that we're not doing a good enough job at just convincing other people who aren't as convinced of us as, you know, when it comes to liberal economics, liberal immigration, things like that. Are, have, have we grown lazy? Have we grown a bit apathetic about this? I mean, I, obviously, I can say that, that you haven't. You're the executive director of the Institute for Liberal Studies. But obviously, I'm speaking in a general sense here. Yeah. Uh, have, have, have we rested on our laurels a bit as a, quote, movement or ideology? I mean, I think there's always a danger. And when I say that the trend is positive, I don't think it's because there's some sort of mystical force in the ether that we can sit back and, and human societies will tend to evolve towards freedom. An invisible liberal hand, if you will. Exactly. <laughs> I, I wish that there were, and, uh, or at least a, a mystical hand. Maybe there is an invisible hand, but the invisible hand is the arguments, uh, that we make arguments and we have conversations as groups, as societies, uh, and we talk about rights and, uh, and freedoms and those sorts of things. And Generally, most of the time, in most cases, slowly but surely, I think those arguments tend to win out, tend to convince people, especially as they see the progress that is made in, in other societies. Hmm. Uh, you look at the economic reforms that the Chinese Communist Party made uh, in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, and into the 1990s. Why did, you know, they still on paper are communist, mm -hmm. but they've really, in a lot of ways, become much more open to, to market systems, to capitalism. Why did that happen? Well, they were looking at Hong Kong. And they were seeing what liberalism had done in Hong Kong. And people wanted that sort of thing. And so although they retained a lot of the political controls, right. I hope that's no long-term thing. I, I think that over the long term, having a, a increasingly wealthy and influential middle class in China is going to break down the political and speech controls uh, of the government. But uh, I mean, I guess to get back to your point, it's not a automatic thing that happens. Um, but... We make these arguments. We make the case for human freedom. A lot of people, a lot of the time, will find those those convincing, and I think that keeps us heading in the right direction. But it is important that we keep continue to do that mm -hmm. because we can't just sit back and assume that the arc of history will be in the right direction on its own. Right. Do, do you feel like these arguments are appealing over time because people uh, naturally have a leaning towards them? And I don't want to get into an in-depth thing about fundamental human nature, but as an example, when you, when you visit campuses or host events with students and you talk with students a lot, even people who don't have sort of a um, haven't been pre-exposed to these ideas. When, when they sort of hear uh, ideas of classical liberalism, do you find that light bulbs go off? Do, do people have sort of a, a natural tendency to find these ideas appealing? There's certainly an element to that. I think there's, you know, to some degree, a, a, a natural tension um, between people's personal experiences and then projecting that into sort of what society should look like. So on the one hand, People, everybody has their own things that they want to do, and they understand that they want to do those things. And sometimes their friends want to do other things, and their family members want to do other things. And the best way to resolve this is not to get your friends together and uh, sort of coerce the people who don't want to do what you do into, into doing it. You know, you you choose. You you go to dinner with one group of friends who who want to go to the same 
type of restaurant that you do that night. You play sports with friends who want to play the the game that you do on on the particular night and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So everybody, I think, has some understanding of, I would like to do the things that I would like to do, um, and I can do them peacefully, and I don't need to coerce or convince anyone to, uh, to do them with me, for me to be able to do them. On the other hand, we know that when we want to do things as a group of friends, as a family unit, there's some degree of planning involved. Mm. And we have to you know, plan for the family's budget, plan for the family vacation, whatever, whatever that may be, plan to do an activity with your friends. And, uh, and the, the tension there is that in a society, that doesn't carry over. To have the government plan to the degree that we plan in small groups mm-hmm. does, not, um, does not work in the same way. So there's this tension between sort of the intimate order and, and the extended order. And we want to behave differently in the intimate order as the extended order. But to some degree, we have these sort of, you know, caveman brains that, uh, <laughs> that uh, you know, were, uh, were serving people for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years before modern society evolved. So we have a desire to plan and we think that things should be planned. But when you try to plan the economy, when you try to plan uh, exactly how things should look, how many shoes we should have, how many cars should be produced, that actually doesn't work. We want to leave that up to to individual entrepreneurs and, and corporations and companies to come up with those ideas. And then if they're wrong, yeah, they, mm-hmm. they, they profit or loss, depending on whether they're right or wrong. So yeah, in some cases, human nature, people understand this, but there are other elements of what they don't understand. Right. And talking and learning is a good way to try and reconcile these conflicting ideas. Right. And I, I don't mean to say that some people like naturally come to the table with an understanding of, of microeconomics and other, others don't. I, I guess I'm, I'm, I was trying to get a little bit more into the idea as well that um, if, if there is a natural tendency towards the classical liberal ideas, more from the perspective of, for example... Um, I find that maybe it's taught or people come to the table with the preconception that you ha- need to plan things because that's sort of what they've been exposed to for most of their life. But underneath the surface, we can sort of get, get to an area where maybe that's not necessarily true in, in their subconscious or the way they actually think. But I mean, if you think about it, you're in elementary school, or actually starting even earlier, sorry, daycare, preschool, elementary school, high school, you're kind of in educational institutions to some degree or another between the ages of effectively zero and, and 18. And a lot of people might get ideas from there where they think things must be planned, right? I think X, therefore there ought to be a law. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, and that actually, you know, it, it's uh, I think to some element or some degree, um, you know, sort of a component of our education system, but also just in the way people tend to think about things. You see a problem. And if it's uh, if it's a simple problem, uh, you reach out and ma- and maybe you can solve it. But if it's a more systemic social problem, then you think about the way that government could be used to solve that. Uh, and the problem is that sometimes you know sometimes government is the right way to solve those problems. So we're worried that sometimes you know people would steal things from other people. Right. And so we want to have a justice system that sets out laws regarding property and punishes people who violate. And uh, and that seems to me like a good thing for, for government to do. I think most people would say that. Yeah. We, most people agree criminal law, good place for government to intervene. A lot of people would say that. Yeah, yeah. And then there's some nuance in there. Maybe we'll we'll have someone to, to explore some of that in a future episode. Right. But, uh, but as, as, as a base level, 
government's relatively good at that kind of thing. Um, but then there are other issues. You know, we want to solve poverty. We want to uh, to make sure that people uh, are not discriminated against. And, and government is not always the best way to use those uh, to solve those problems. And, and one is that sometimes the toolbox is sort of limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times it comes down to passing a law. Uh, you know, trying to coerce people and force people to to do something. And another problem is that it tends to be centralized and it doesn't have that local knowledge. Now, of course, in Canada, we have different levels of government. So the federal government does some things, the provincial government does other things, you know, local towns, city governments mm-hmm. do other things. And so degree, that can help to address that problem. But you still have many things. You know, your local town or city government is not necessarily going to know, say you don't have a job and, and this is a problem for you. They're not necessarily going to know that uh, there's actually someone else in uh, you know, in your neighborhood who can use the skill set that you have. Mm-hmm. So how do you solve those sorts of problems? We can do it without government a lot of the times. And this is, I think, a, a misunderstanding that a lot of people have when it comes to liberal or, or libertarian thinking is that they think that if we oppose a government program, government plan to solve a problem, we're not concerned about that problem. Right. Uh, Peter Jaworski refers to this as the ought state gap. You know, there are things we ought to do. Doesn't necessarily follow that the state has to be how we accomplish those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we can have discussions and, and conversations about which of those things are best addressed to the state and which things are not. But to a lot of people, they don't even consider a lot of these problems should not be solved by the state. Right. And that's what makes us a little bit different. Great. I actually think that's a great place for a break. So we're going to take a quick one, and then we'll be back soon. Sounds good. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Randy T. Simmons, Rosa Pagliarello, and Sabine Elchidiak. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Matt, before the break... Uh, you were talking a bit about how um, when classical liberals or libertarians uh, say that they, the government shouldn't do something or shouldn't intervene on an issue, a lot of people uh, mistake that for the idea that we, do, we don't care about that issue or we don't think anything should be done about that issue, quite frankly. But I mean, it's, it's a valid objection in the sense if you just have a, let's call it a bar conversation with somebody, you say, hey, I don't, I don't think the government should do this, 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 and this. And if you're talking to certain people, I mean, that list could go on all night. So, so what is your best argument? Of course, feel free to use a specific example. What, what is your best argument for why the government uh, shouldn't be involved in something? Maybe we could get that on the record and go there as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, first I want to go back to a little bit about what you said about the, you know, this is a problem that uh, that we might have, that you mm. talk to someone and you say, I don't think the government should uh, should do anything. Right. That ties in actually uh, to a really good quote from one of my favorite thinkers, uh, Friedrich Hayek. Mm. And uh, and Hayek, uh, in, uh, in a paper that he wrote in the 1960s has a bit where he talks about the challenge of, of building a free society and 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 liberalism and he has a problem uh, that he identifies that it's it can be a negative conception sometimes uh, and Hayek in this paper says we must make the building of a free society once more an intellectual adventure a deed of courage
bridge. And what we lack is a, a liberal utopia, a program which seems neither a mere mm. defense of things as they are, uh, nor a diluted kind of socialism, but a truly liberal radicalism, which does not spare the susceptibilities of the mighty, which is not too severely practical, and which does not confine, it, confine itself to that which appears today as politically possible. And, and I think that touches on some of the important things when considering this issue. Uh, because if you're talking about some sort of problem that you want to uh, want to address, then uh, then people might mistake your claim, or you know, if you're put for the position that you didn't think there should be government program, that someone says, well, things are sort of you think they're fine as they are, and we don't need to worry about it. Now that might be the case. There might be issues where other people want to propose a policy, or you or I would say, no, we don't, we don't really need a uh, policy to to address that. But I do think there's a lot of things where we want to talk about. Um, all other alternatives uh, and ways that we want to do that, not through government. Right. My favorite example for that is to talk about charity and the welfare state mm-hmm. and replacing those sorts of assistances that are now done in a very impersonal way through sort of government checks um, and could be done and, you know, in the past were done in a different way. And we certainly, we still see a, um, a pretty uh, we certainly still see a degree of uh, of private charity for for helping things, mm-hmm. uh, and and we have government doing it, and that's that's sort of an implicit recognition that government is not able to solve all of the problems from of poverty, unemployment, you know, whatever the the social issue might be. Mm-hmm. If they were solving all the problems, they would be crowding out the charities. Well, exactly right. And one thing you might want to ask yourself if you're talking or ask someone you're talking to if uh, you want to sort of make this point is, you know, imagine you've got $100, you got a bonus at work, and you want to use $100 of the money you got to uh, to help out the less fortunate. Mm-hmm. Are you more likely to give that to your local soup kitchen, to the Salvation Army, to a homeless shelter, or do you want to write a check to the government? And uh, and let them use the money that way, and and I think I can guess which way most people can answer that question. Right, right. So specifically, when it comes to things that, you know, you, for instance, you might believe that the government shouldn't be involved, and it's interesting to me that sort of like an undercurrent of of what you're discussing is not necessarily that the the liberal. The classical liberal, the libertarian, throws their hands up and, as you said, says, oh, forget it. There's nothing we can do about this. It just seems that there's no sort of specifically planned answers. I wouldn't go so far as to say that the liberal has no answers, but but they have answers to a point where they could definitely see um, objectives and outcomes they'd like to see. But but I think uh, the classical liberal libertarian uh, definitely is, is ready to admit that they don't know exactly how everything would be accomplished. And I think that's the key difference we're sort of getting into here. It is, and it also provides tension, um, another tension in sort of you know, classical liberal thought is that uh, that if you are an advocate for using a government program to solve a particular problem, then the answer can often be fairly easy, right? Uh, well, we need to get a, a group of experts, people who know about this issue, right. and get them in a room. They can have meetings and conversations and, and consultations with the community. They'll come up with a plan. That will uh, will solve the problem. They'll probably need some revenue, so we can earmark some tax revenues or or impose a new tax potentially to uh, to fund that program. 
And that's the way that we we solve the problem. And then my mm-hmm. concern is that, and I think in a lot of cases, those government programs have not been effective in solving the problems that uh, that they were intended to solve. The most classic example of that would be uh, Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty in in the U.S. Right. Uh, you know, poverty rates were going down an astounding rate uh, for the first two thirds of the 20th century. Uh, the poverty rate in 1960 was much much lower in in the U.S. Right. And, and in Canada. Uh, in 1960 than it had been in 1900. Uh, and then the welfare state sort of kicks into second gear. You know, It existed before that, but right. it really sort of ramps up. And uh, and since then, we haven't seen as much of a degree uh, decrease in poverty. Now, it's not that I think things have stagnated since then. I think that a lot of people are better off. Uh, and, uh, and even people who are impoverished, uh, I think you'd rather be poor now in Canada than you would have in, in 1965. Um, but uh, I do not think we may have seen the progress that we would have had we addressed that in other ways. So we've got this problem where we want to say, well, let's not do it through government. And we might be tempted to opine on what sort of structure we would like to see. Uh, but sort of inherent in that position is that we sort of want to, to use, you know, a discovery process. We want maybe right. one of entrepreneurs or, and they doesn't have to be for-profit entrepreneurs. These could be community groups or charities that are, that are trying to solve these problems. And it's quite possible and maybe even that's the likelihood that if we have a problem being solved by a lot of people like that, the solution is not going to be something that you or I can imagine after having three beers. In a, in a pub one night. <laughs> right, yeah. I, th- I think it's not only is it fair to say that, that the liberal in many cases doesn't have answers for things, I think th- it's also fair to say that th- they are happy to admit that they can't come up with the answer as well for, for certain problems. We, we certainly should be. And uh, and so the the idea you know that supports uh, this, this policy and this approach is not to say, well, here's my detailed plan of right. how we would solve this problem. Because if you've got the right plan, then we should just put you in charge of things. And maybe that's putting you in charge of the government. Right. And we implement your plan. However, if, uh, if you're talking to someone who's deeply concerned about problem X and they said, well, how would you solve problem X if we're not going to use the government to do it? And you say, well, I can't tell you. We're just going to need to find that along the way. That is a deeply satisfying, unsatisfying answer right. to people who have real concerns about those issues. Right, right. And, and I think that that's one of the biggest problems we, the royal we, and of course you and I here, yep. face in, in discussions with people. Is a lot of people want that answer, right? Back to sort of what I was saying before. Yep. Is that, you know, we're, we're, a lot of people spend most of their time in educational institutions when they're growing up. There's always an answer on the chalkboard. On the, I guess, on, am I dating myself? That's crazy. <laughs> on, on the whiteboard. It's, I no, it's now a smart, it's now a smart <laughs> board. board whiteboard, whatever it is. Exactly. There's, there's always an answer. And then to, to get into, you know, quote, I hate when people say it, but we'll use it, the real world. And, you know, for guys. Guys like us to to come up and say, hey, guess what? There's no answer to this problem. Maybe the market will provide in this case. It's a bit of a shock. So if it's a shock to those people, it's a shock to a lot of people to, to hear that kind of logic, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it really is a case where a lot of uh, situations, there is no answer that can be written on the chalkboard. Uh, we need to sort of gradually move towards that way. And yeah, this extends my view that generally we're moving in the right direction. Years go by and we solve problems that were not problems before. A lot of those solutions do not come out of the government 
uh, come out of people working peacefully and, and voluntarily together. But it's not a simple process, and right. it's not a guaranteed process. Right. It's got that, that catchy thing that Milton Friedman once said. He's like, you know, the theory of relativity, uh, the the innovation in computers and, and the automobile, that kind of stuff. It didn't come out of a government bureau. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And, and importantly, I think perhaps for this thread of conversation, is it's not that uh, that we knew before computers or, or space flight or any of these things had been invented that we were necessarily sitting around waiting for them to be invented that in some cases that was true but in many cases things didn't exist that we didn't know were ever going to exist and so there was no way to anticipate the changes that they would bring about so so the, so the classical liberal libertarian we, we also care about the, the spontaneousness of, of, of the economy and of life and of the way people organize themselves as you said it's, it's sort of a trick of history if you look at it in just kind of a straight line to think oh uh, these people were were idiots until this was invented and, and they always knew they should invent it but they finally got around to inventing it then that's sort of something that you might you know subconsciously put away as that's what's happened but but you're right in, in reality a lot of the great in inventions and innovations this wasn't uh these these weren't things that people sat around and said we really need that so let's figure it out yeah 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 uh, one example of this is uh, people talk about usb drives and their ability to save trees and uh and so now if you have a lot of documents you can put them on a, on a usb drive and i may be dating myself now maybe you throw them up in the cloud and you get them on your phone right. or whatever but for uh, at least you for, didn't say floppy disk yeah yeah <laughs> uh well you have floppy disk you're so limited and what right. you could have and, and and to carry them around uh mm -hmm. could have been a, a pain but i have a usb drive on my uh, on my keychain right and uh, and sometimes i need a file or something and uh, and i'm able to throw off my computer and then carry it around to, to one I have it and want to print, you know, print it off, perhaps, or or, or access it, or, or review it, or whatever it is. Uh, and there are certainly less things printed today uh, because of USB drives than mm -hmm. there would have been had we not had them. But it wasn't a thing that people were looking around saying, "Oh, I, I wish this thing existed," because of course we had no idea. And, right. and the person who invented them wasn't trying to reduce the number of trees and the amount of paper that we would need. They were just trying to look at a way to solve a problem that people had. Right. And shifting gears a bit now, but of course still in the same thread, we're talking about the future of liberalism and where it's going. A lot of people yeah, will say to people like us, Matt, uh, these are nice ideas you guys are talking about. It's great for podcasts, great for the bar, great for a few friends. But but do we really need some sort of, uh, quote, intellectual movement when it comes to classical liberalism and, and the tenets of liberalism in general? Uh, don't we have sort of these things preserved in, say, American conservatism or perhaps in some ways Canadian conservatism? I'm sure you've come across this, maybe not in this exact way or worded this exactly, but this type of objection does come up a lot. People people wonder, is, is this sort of just like a fringe thing that we're talking about here today? Or is this something that that does need its own set of conversation and ideas and values? Yeah, yeah. Well, to, to a degree, it is a fringe thing because the number of people who want to sit around and read Adam Smith's uh, writings or or uh, Friedrich Hayek's readings and, and have you know sustained conversations about those things is pretty small. Mm -hmm. So in in that definition, yeah, maybe we are on the fringe, uh, but we're not on the fringe in the sense that these ideas are so strange or extreme or foreign that the the mainstream person would uh, you know be horrified or, or something like that mm -hmm. uh, by them uh, you know Hayek going back to Hayek Hayek talks about uh, the intellectuals as secondhand dealers of ideas 
And when he says that, it sounds dismissive. It sounds like he's writing off into intellectuals as unimportant. Right. Uh, what does it mean when he says secondhand dealers of ideas? What he really means is there's a class of people in society, and these are usually sort of grouped by by a few professions, who what they do is they're passing on ideas to other people, and they sort of filter through society that way. And I think that's uh, the great importance of having a liberal intellectual class, is to have these sort of really you know, geeky, sustained, in-depth conversations full of nuance and semantic differences and all those things that the layperson is not going to be concerned with. But those people can then go and they teach a university class and a lot more people go to university these days than they did. Uh, maybe some of them record a, a podcast or, or a YouTube lecture that, that gets out. Uh, and this is the sort of the way that people who don't spend as much time as some of us do thinking about these ideas can then learn about these concepts and discuss them. And of course, they're going to be getting ideas from different sources. They've got to weigh them against each other and decide which ones they think are, are most interesting, which ones are true, which ones are most applicable. And uh, in that way, the ideas that are sort of thought about by intellectuals and the stereotypical ivory tower filter through society. And I think that's a really important thing. Okay. So, so, so you would definitely consider it a victory if someone does sort of, you know, cuddle up in their bed one night and crack open the theory of moral sentiments by Adam Smith. We, we would consider that a victory. But you seem to also uh, be saying that you'd consider it a victory if sort of these ideas are also just naturally absorbed, that people aren't, you know, cracking open those 700 page books, that if these ideas sort of take hold, just without people noticing them, that's something that you you also seem to, that you would be happy with. A- absolutely. And in some ways, the intellectual opponent of Friedrich Hayek was uh, John Maynard Keynes. And there's an excellent series of rap videos uh, produced by Russ Roberts and John Popola. And there, there's two versions of it. Uh, it's the Hayek-Keynes rap video. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the sound's so geeky and nerdy. And, and they're actually much, much better done than I would ever imagined they could have been done before I saw them. And I say that both in terms of the intellectual quality, uh, which is very high. High, and I think they present both sides of these arguments in a in a fair way that people who endorse these positions would uh, would uh, adopt, uh, but also in a way that is musically and the, the acting and the, the lighting and these things is quite good. You can find them on YouTube. I recommend uh, you Google Hayek versus Keynes rap video. And one thing that Keynes pointed out uh, was that uh, that politicians don't think that they are continuing some intellectual or academic threat if they're announcing a policy, they're, they're making a speech. But often, you can trace ideas that they're espousing back to some sort of original intellectual point. So yeah, as much as I love to think about the person who sits down, wants to read the theory of moral sentiments, and even better yet, you know, study it with friends and, right. and talk about it, that's not most people, right? We're all busy. We've all got things that do. But the ideas and... Uh, you know, hopefully this is a, a competitive process in which over the long term, the best ideas are the ones that bubble up, the ones that tend to win out over the long run, although not every, not all the time on a day-to-day basis. Those ideas sort of percolate through society. Sometimes people are aware, you know, I think a lot of people are aware of the invisible hand and uh, and where that comes from. Um, but uh, but when people talk about, uh, you, know, uh, you know, faraway government programs versus grassroots planning or grassroots action in the, in the local community to solve problems, in some ways they are echoing the debate that Hayek and Keynes had. And in most times people talk about that. They're probably not consciously aware of or thinking about uh, these economic debates between these two economists in the 1930s. Hmm. 
so does everything we just talked about ever make you worry? Uh, back back to in relation back to things we we're talking about before, right? We're talking about things sort of percolating through society. It might, it might be subconsciously there, um, you know, but not consciously. But uh, people are picking up books. I mean, we don't need to name drop specific ones right now, but people are picking up books that are directly manifestos of certain ideas that you and I would find reprehensible. Whether that's like you said, uh, some sort of far right wing fascism, or on on the other hand, we have like out, outright Stalinism or something like that. There are people that sort of they can say, okay, here, here's my two books. <laughs> this is sort of what what I what I think, and uh, here's my plan for society. I mean, we spend a great amount of time talking about how that might not work and how ultimately. Um, you know, uh, a non-centrally planned solution to a variety of problems is is the way to go. So you and I think that, but a lot, but a lot of other people don't. Do you ever fear that sort of the, you know, that that powerful one book idea or or the manifesto sort of approach to all of society's problems uh, is in any way, at least on the surface, or the way it appears to people, stronger than classical liberalism or libertarian tenets? Yeah, and then there's always that danger. I mean, probably the the best examples to that come to mind if you think about that are you know the effect that uh, the Karl Marx and uh, and his writings uh, about communism had on society in the 20th century, and as as a bit of a parallel, uh, you know Hitler, uh, Mein Kampf, and and how that shaped uh, a lot of 20th century history. So there's definitely always this threat that people are going to come along with ideas that are bad or dangerous. You know, maybe they're evil, maybe they're not. Um, that sort of depends on whether you think how you think these people are motivated and is perhaps aside from the question. Um, but there's definitely a lot of troublesome ideas that can cause a lot of harm and suffering. Uh, and so the question is, how do we combat those ideas? Right. And at the end of the day, I really think we've only got two options. So we can try to ban those ideas because we think we know what the right set of ideas is that should take place, and uh, and we think we can stamp out the wrong ideas. And John Stuart Mill just turned over six times in his grave, so... Well, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and Mill was great on this, right? Yeah. He, he talked about uh, the, the capabilities. So this is the other way to... Uh, right. to address these bad ideas is to argue against them with ideas that you think are better. And of course, one of the challenges is uh, sometimes if you hear some ideas that you think are wrong or bad, um, you are going to have another set of ideas. Uh, but hopefully everyone has had the experience of arguing with a friend about something. And over time, you're convinced that you're actually the one who's wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had banned your friend from having those ideas, and of course this presumes you even can, which you really can't. Or, or cancel your friend if we want to use another word. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, but you know, that's, that's the part of, I think, the intellectual humility of the liberal mm -hmm. tradition is you want to be aware that you can be wrong. And so you want to put forward your arguments and you want to engage with people who have different ideas and different arguments. And if you're right, then that's good. Um, hopefully you convince them. Uh, and, uh, and Mill would have pointed out that this gives you the ability to better understand your idea by engaging in that conversation and, and debate with your friend. Um, but even more importantly, what if you're wrong? Then mm -hmm. you get to trade in your wrong position for the correct position, which you've arrived at through a process of debate and discussion and understanding, mm. which, of course, is a lot more reliable than someone tells you, you can't think this. Uh, because uh, I think that history will tell us that in the case of banned books, you know, sometimes they ban the right books. Mein Kampf has been banned in a lot of places. But a lot of times they ban books that shouldn't actually be banned. Um, now, you can't really know beforehand mm -hmm. uh, necessarily whether the book 
should be banned or not. So much better, I think, to let all those ideas out into the open, have them debate each other, um, and hope and have faith mm-hmm. uh, that uh, in the long run, the good ideas will win out uh, because people want to understand the truth. Mm-hmm. And even if you and I could sit here and come up with a list of dangerous books or terrible books or anti-illiberal books, I should say, then I, I don't think we'd want them banned anyway. That's the, way, that's the type of position we sit in. We, we'd want people to study these things and discuss them regardless. So. Of course, of course. And of course, one of the, the other counterpoints is that if you try to ban bad ideas, uh, of course, you can't actually ban them. You know, People can still have these ideas. Right. So you drive them underground. Um, and I've seen this uh, with students uh, who are perhaps uh, sort of, you attracted by certain ideas that uh, that are associated with the alt-right. And, uh, and if they don't feel that they can ask about those questions and have conversations, mm-hmm. which I think is a bit of a trend that's emerging, is people of those opinions will be tempted, especially young people, right. to keep them to themselves. And they talk about them online. Right. And then they're talking about other people who are in those forums and those, those venues. Much better, I think, to have them be talking to real people face-to-face and say, well, I read this. I think maybe it's true. What do you guys think? Right. Like by I guess by 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 limiting the arenas of conversation, we also limit who are looked at as the authorities and, and sources of information in those arenas. So you end up with in a lot of these movements the three guys or girls that people look at and say they have the answers because I can't talk about this stuff anywhere else. And sort of a corollary to this is also that by pushing it underground, as you said before, I would say that um, you sort of give it sort of this this air and this this mysticism around it that it's the quote right answer no one else wants to talk about this stuff so you know they must know over there kind of thing in this underground bar wherever they're, yeah. they're talking about this stuff so yeah. much better have it out in the open i guess yeah no i, I think there's a real uh, danger of, of giving bad ideas a bit of a mystique mm-hmm. if you say you know you cannot hear this talk or you cannot read this book then perhaps natural response is well what is so powerful about this idea idea, this speaker, these ideas, that they have to be banned. They can't be countered. Right. I can't even be allowed to hear them because mm-hmm. they are so convincing and I will just be convinced mm-hmm. that they are true and have no choice but to adopt those ideas. Right. That's going to give people a desire to hear what those ideas are. Right. I mean, back in the, in the in the good old late 90s, early 2000s, when video games were really taken off, I remember that, you know, if even just uh, if it wasn't a legal ban, right? If you heard that some some parents down the street didn't want your the kids playing, I don't know, uh, Grand Theft Auto or something, you could be sure that within the next three days, someone found a, somehow found a copy of that, and we were all talking about him playing it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. So canceling, banning, maybe these aren't the ways to go with different thoughts we don't like. It's certainly not the the liberal and the classical sense way to go. No, and to some degree, I think it play, plays into the marketing that some people who espouse some of these ideas uh, want to. Is, you know, they mm, talk good about point, good how, point. how they were banned, how controversial, how the elites right. don't want you to hear right. what they're going to say, and that can give it an attraction. Right. Whatever arena or, or, or venue does allow them to speak, it's like only you can you can only see them here kind of thing. Yes, so, yeah, um, yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, brings me actually to, to another thing I wanted to address. Um, the labels libertarian, classical liberal, take your pick. Um, do you feel that these words are are sort of a big tent words now? I find at least that people tend to have a great time associating whatever they want with these. Let's call them clouds. You know, they're kind of like nebulous ideas. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of folks out there, and, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way at all. They, they will self-describe as I'm, I'm a far right-wing person. I have right-wing social views. I'm very socially conservative. Uh, they, they might be for economic protectionism, so we got that angle covered as well. But, but 
in one way or another, they will somehow come to identify themselves in some way with like libertarian, classical liberal. What do you say to that sort of thing? Are these labels becoming a little bit too big tent? Are, are they, are they, is there too much of that going on? And, and I know obviously you self-identify as a classical liberal or libertarian, so we don't want to just stomp on everything here and throw it all out the window. But but I'm very interested in what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword uh, because on the one hand that uh, if you think some ideas are true and important, you want to talk about them and you hope that more people you know adopt mm-hmm. views that are at least closer to, uh, to your own views. Um, and yet sometimes that means people who have views that you don't hold will start to associate you know under labels with your views and in most cases there is no ideological gatekeeper who can decide who is or who is not part of a movement mm-hmm. uh, you know there was I think perhaps an exception to this in the, in the mid 20th century uh, Bill Buckley National Review was sort of viewed as the ideological gate, gatekeeper of conservatism right and if I've got the story right I think it was the John Birch Society that he sort of threw out and he said you know these people are not part of the conservative movement and, and he was influential enough that he was that gatekeeper and he was able to sort of expunge them but most ideological groupings do not have that and certainly not these days. And uh, and so, you know, you'll have people, and it's not just classical liberal or libertarian, mm-hmm. people will use terms conservative or progressive course, or yeah. left liberal, whatever it is. And there's probably some other people who fall under that same label mm-hmm. uh, who would say, well, wait a second, you know, that person has this view and this view and this view. And that means they're not really a part of my tribe, mm-hmm. uh, my ideological group. But, uh, but that's just sort of a feature of how it's going to be. So some people, uh, and I think for this reason, really don't like labels. Uh, they'll you know, describe their political views as other or something like that, uh, which I always find sort of amazing because I think, wow, when, I, when someone says, you know, I have these really unique political views, I think, wow, thousands of years of, of millions of people thinking about political ideas and theories and structures, you have such a unique structure that it has not been described by anyone else. So I'm a little bit cynical on that, but I do think that uh, that labels can be useful, but should not be ever thought of as describing every single thought or position that anybody could possibly have. Right. So if I tell you that I'm a, I'm a libertarian, then that's going to tell you a certain set of things about uh, about what I believe, the role of government, the role of individuals, uh, you know, how I think our legal system should be structured and things like that. Now, there's always going to be nuance at the end. Of course. And, uh, and there's always going to be the danger that you're going to say, well, I have another friend who uses that same label. And here are some things he thinks. Um, and then maybe it's up to me if I, if I think those are wrong and those are not, you know, what a, a real libertarian, a real classical liberal should use. Then I, I get to argue and, and try and convince you. Uh, but what I don't get to do is have some sort of like policing around the label that I choose to use. Right. OK. And and I, I totally agree with you, by the way. I think litmus testing or the sort of ch- checkbox libertarianism, let's call it. Oh, you believe this, this, this. And then, oh, sorry, 99 uh, out of 100 you agree with me. Me on <laughs> that one out of a hundred, you don't. I guess you're not a libertarian. I agree. That's all, that's all nonsense. But but this does bring me into the next question I want to ask and lead into, which is okay. How, how would you then, for someone listening to this, um, broadly define libertarianism? And then, if you'd like to, you can make a distinguishment between that and classical liberalism, liberalism as well. But of course, like we were saying, no policy. You don't need to talk about negative income tax versus no tax. Like none of that stuff. Just how would you like like someone, especially as the executive director of the Institute for Liberal? studies if someone comes to freedom week or any of the other great events that you guys put on 
if they come away with one thing about what libertarianism and classical liberalism is, what do you want them to broadly think of it as? Yeah, you know, I wish I had a really clean and clear-cut answer for you here, but despite the fact that I spent a lot of time thinking about this uh, and talking to a lot of other people, actually in part because of how much time I spend talking to other people about this, I realize there's such a wide variety of sets of how do you define these terms. You know, a lot of people, uh, if they were talking about uh, defining libertarianism, would uh, would sort of then follow with the non-aggression principle, uh, principle, the famous NAP in, right. uh, in libertarian circles, and be well, you can't initiate any sort of uh, force or, or coercion uh, against anyone. Uh, but then a lot of people would say, well, I want to call myself a libertarian, but I'm okay with a, a minimal amount of tax to fund a uh, you know an army and a justice system or things like that. And I think it's really tough to justify. Uh, well, then if you believe this particular thing, then it's it's hard to throw you out. And, right. and again, you get into these litmus tests that uh, that are troublesome. Um, so I don't have a clear and fast definition in the, in the distinction between libertarianism and classical liberalism, I think is especially difficult to right. define. Right. Um, but I do like what my friend Peter Jaworski sort of says, uh, which is uh, libertarianism is a bit of a default position towards liberty. Hmm. So you want to presume that people are free to do things. And if you were want to restrict them, then the onus is on you to come up with the case of why you want to do that, right? Mm. So you take the the most obvious example of the thing that really violates other people's liberty, you know, murder. Well, you know, should you be free to murder someone else? Maybe you really like murdering. It's really appealing. Or maybe you just really hate an individual person. You don't want to murder a lot of people. Just there's one person that you really want to murder. Right. And then we would say, well, no, obviously uh, we want people to have uh, a right to life. Right. Uh, whether that comes from a, from a religious grounding or consequentialist grounding or, or whatever it is. Uh, there's obviously a lot of good arguments about why you're know, murdering someone else is a liberty that should be limited. Right. Okay. But uh, I think we can sort of extend this and apply this to having to argue anytime you want to limit someone's liberties, you have to come up with a good and convincing argument of why you should do that. And we should give a really wide latitude uh, and respect liberty because we all want to do things. In many cases, we want to do different things. Uh, and yet we live in a society together. And the best way for, for us to do that is for us to have a large degree of respect towards the peaceful things that other people want to do that bring them happiness. Well, you said you'd have a hard time even creating a, a broad sort of brushstroke of this whole thing. But I think, I think you actually did a good job. I, I got to give you credit. I mean, sort of the idea that classical liberalism libertarianism and in the broadest sense that someone who considers themselves a classical liberal or libertarian should see sort of less intervention and more freedom as sort of the default position and then you need an extremely strong case to have any form of intervention what obviously from the government we're speaking in this case to, to take hold and I think, I think that's a really good one uh, it makes a lot of sense great great lots, lots for people to think about good good i hope so um so we, we've talked about a lot, and I want to bring it full circle and put a f finer point on, on the initial exploration question. So what do you hope the main takeaways are here for someone who's listening to your opinion on what the future of liberalism is? 
Uh, so I guess I guess two main takeaways, and one is to be optimistic and to uh, to realize that uh, that the the direction of human freedom and, and human flourishing has been generally upward, and I think that's a thing that we have a hard time appreciating because many of us, if we you know, live in developed country, have done so well. You know, we have such a miraculous time of prosperity and wealth, and of course that doesn't extend universally, but it extends quite broadly, mm-hmm. um, and that's a really positive thing, and that makes makes us have this sort of, uh, you know, or we can be susceptible to a romantic view of the past. And, and, and I think that, you know, we are a lot freer today than we ever were in the past. Uh, and because of that, we're a lot richer. We live longer. We live more fulfilling lives. All of that is wonderful. The second point then is to sort of appreciate that, but not take it for granted right. and not think that we can just sort of set society on autopilot and this will continue forever. So you want to think about how do we, you know, ensure that we keep the gains we've made and we hopefully start to make new gains. Um, and and I think the answer there relies in, you know, having conversations about liberty, about society, about freedom and law and government and democracy and all of these things uh, and, and using, you know, peaceful conversations. And, and maybe persuasion uh, as the way to move forward, because the opposite of that, the other path is sort of coercion, you know, banning, forcing. Um, that's not liberal, uh, and that's not the kind of thing that I don't think we want to do. Great. That's awesome. I think that's a great place to end it. At least I will say bye for now to Matt, the uh, the, the executive director of the Institute for Liberal Studies. I'm going to say real quick hello to Matt, the executive producer of this podcast, because I did want to get on air and capture um, something I thought was really cool. Um, for those of you that don't know, uh, Matt was actually the one who came up with the name uh, the curious task for for the for the podcast per se. He he th- he thought that that would be a great name for the podcast, and I thought let's take the opportunity here. Let, let's explain to people where that name came from and why you, why you thought it'd be great for this podcast. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's fitting that uh, that it comes from a quote from uh, from Friedrich Hayek. Uh, we've talked about Hayek uh, a few times in our conversation, and also I think themes that play well into the quote. So in his last book, The Fatal Conceit. Hayek says, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. Now, I think that plays back a lot in terms of we we tend to think that we can plan things. Economics is teaching a lesson about constraint uh, of understanding the limits to to what we can do. Now, this is not going to be only a podcast about economics, but it is a podcast that is going to incorporate in many ways this sort of economic way of thinking. Uh, Don't worry if you don't have a degree in advanced mathematics. That is not the type of economics that we're uh, we're primarily going to be dealing with with here. But we want to think Think about human relations and and you know, scarcity and desires and wants and all these things that uh, that people have. Uh, and in some ways, you know, I think the 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 name, the curious task, sort of sum, sums that up. Uh, we're not working towards a, a finite goal. Uh, we don't have any metrics up on the uh, the whiteboard off behind us. Uh, but how will we, we will know when this podcast has uh, has achieved its goals? Um, in some ways, it's this curious task of exploration, of discussion, of learning. Uh, there's no clear endpoint, uh, but we hope that it is a meaningful and, and fruitful journey for people who choose to listen as they think more about the world they live in. Great. I can't think of anywhere better to end it than there. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today, Matt. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. Hope you have a great day, night, wherever you are, and we'll catch you on the next one. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. 
The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.